Welcome to the 99 Topics for the CCFP Exam podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Brady Bouchard. Brady Bouchard. Michael Curlew. How's How are you going? doing today? Just fine. And yourself? Not too bad. Not too bad. Keeping it real? Oh, always. Where are always you these days? Uh, still in Victoria. Victoria, the basement of Victoria, where great things happen. Something like that. Busy day today? It was good. It was good. Really busy today, but not too, yeah. too crazy. You, you, look, you look a little worn down today, if I if I do say so. What kind of compliment is that, Dr. Bouchard? <laughs> I look no. worn down today. I'm giving you the casual Mike Curlew look instead of the... I'm just oh, maybe about that's to it. Trace somebody, look, you know, Aiden. Maybe that's. I'll turn it into a compliment. Usually, you're so put together. Maybe that's oh, exactly. It. So I'm not put together. Hello, <laughs> you're not winning brownie points, Doctor Bouchard. Come on. Uh, uh nice, Mike. Uh, oh my word, fever, effervescent, starring Doctor Brady Bouchard. There you go. We're actually rocking the fever world. Power of the people. Can you hear me now? Oh my God, this is so much better. Oh my god, it's so much better. Yeah. Oh. I, I struggle a little bit clearing up the audio sometimes about on the podcast, but yeah, we fixed it good here. Listen, you are you are a fantastic I was saying your ability to beat match <laughs> yeah. on that you give me fever. Yeah. That was awesome. I was just gonna say I'm surprised you actually listened to it. I usually get sick of it after listening to it twenty times while I'm editing it. Really? Holy moly. I just I yeah, I, I listened to a couple, and it was like, you give me fever. I'm like, that is a part at the end. Yeah, exactly. I love that. Oh, absolutely. You did a good job of that, man. What are we talking about today? Let's get, to, we're talking about fever, Dr. Bouchard. We are. We are. We're not talking about DJing. We're talking about fever, Dr. Bouchard. Oh, what a topic. Oh, let's not make it too vague and too broad, right? So how are we going to tackle this one, Dr. Bouchard? Uh, well, I thought we'd split it up kind of almost into age groups because, I mean, such, a, like, the majority of the topic really is fever in children. That's what we care about the most. Perfect. I'm glad you mentioned it. That's what I was thinking about as well, too. Yeah, exactly. A lot of this could be broken down into, you know, fever in kids because we have to know what to do in a two-day-old with a fever, right? Um, and as well, too, maybe another topic with fever as well, too, is febrile neutropenia, right? Yeah, absolutely. Which we know that, you know, you don't send the person home with nothing. Right. Um, uh, um, so those are very, very good. Uh, so how do how do those sound? We'll talk a little. We'll jam a little bit. DJ Brady Bouchard will first, you know, drop the hook on pediatric fever, and then we'll tackle some febrile neutropenia. Does that sound okay? Sounds lovely. And maybe a little bit of Perfect. fever of unknown origin. Oh my God! The DJ himself, the beat mat- matching expert, Dr. Brady Bouchard. Is is queuing up another hit, folks. Fever of unknown origin. There you go. Uh, what else? A little bit uh, neuroleptic malignant syndrome and serotonin syndrome. Oh my god! We could do some neuroleptic malignant syndrome. Perfect. I would just touch. You want to tackle malignant just, hyperthermia? Just touch on it because it's actually in the priority oh, we, topics. Just, just a we, touch. We have to touch on just it. Touch. We have to touch on. Yeah. yeah, exactly. We have to touch on it. So at least knowing what it is. So that's very good. You're going to have some neuroleptic malignant syndrome. Um, um, do you want to tackle serotonin syndrome, DJ? Yeah. DJ well, exactly. Bouchard? You got to, if you're talking about one, you got to talk about the other. Oh my God. 
DJ Bouchard, you are a magician on the turntables of examination, folks. Ah, uh, Jesus. Yeah, something like that. What are you talking about? We're going to use so much DJ analogies in our talk about fever today. <laughs> you are a DJ. I was. I love to DJ. That stuff is like my passion, right? That's awesome. What was your DJ name? That is a secret, okay? Do not secret. worry. DJ Mike. I wasn't as creative as Dr. Bouchard. Was it really DJ Mike? That's really not creative at all. DJ that isn't dj my oh i'm sorry do you think armin van buren like that's the greatest use their own actual name yeah well that's that's true a few of them do there you go a few of the most of them do yeah not the greatest one of all though dead mouse there you go exactly dead mouse exactly wow and he's canadian so there Dr. you go there. captain effervescent sexy dj <laughs> oh god man okay so what are we going to talk about first so fever kicks we get this party started. Oh, 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 party started. I'm sure I'm sure it's 90% of the exam for fever. Easy. It's fever and kids. Because it's exactly. such a common and, and thing this... in primary care in the emergency world. Perfect. And it's a very, very important topic because kids can have this thing called severe bacterial infection. Things like meningitis, things like bacteremia. You kind of want to pick them up. And fever can be, and fever is a really super common reason for people to come see their family doctor, or show up to their local emergency department to see DJ Brady Bouchard spin the turntables of sepsis. Exactly. And the the most troubling thing with it is the vast majority, or at the very least, the majority of kids with fever that you see either in the emergency department or in the clinic are going to do fine. They're going to be totally fine with it. Exactly. They'll deal with their fever. It's a normal response to infection, inflammation. Um, Perfect. you give some education to the parents and they'll be good. It's the, the issue is, is, is picking out that seriously unwell kid or the at risk kid. That's, that's the trick. That's the, the art of medicine. That's the art of medicine. And the art of DJing is picking out the perfect next track, Dr. Bouchard. So as we go on the DJ of fever, pediatric fever. So first thing we want to say, folks is that when you have a fever, the first thing is, what is a fever, right? And how should we be measuring temperatures in really young kids? And um, um, so, yeah, fever can be the sign. So mo- the vast, vast majority of time, it's, 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 the, it's, it's a sign of a regular run-of-the-mill viral infection. But again, how do we pick out those kids that are a minority of kids, but they have this thing called a severe bacterial illness, something like meningitis, something like an invasive infection. So how do you go about picking them out? So the first thing is... And let's start, let's, what, what age group do you want to tackle? Let's tackle like the under one month group. Is that cool? Sure. Well, how about even just a definition of what the fever is? Very good, Dr. Bouchard. So how do you define fever? What cutoff do you use? Because this is something that different, different authorities will use slightly different cutoffs and stuff. Exactly. But we have to have a clear and concise definition of what we consider a fever. So in a young, young child, how are we measuring that temperature? Are we, you know, back of the hand and the forehead, um, you know, uh, Hey, I got this cool Titanic thermometer from the grocery store, and I point it to the kid across the room, and I get a temperature. Like, is that an accurate value, Dr. Bouchard? There's actually good evidence. I, I know you're being uh, uh, facetious there. There's actually good evidence that a parent who says their kid feels warm most often has a fever. Perfect. So measuring it, the best way you can ever measure a temperature, a core temperature um, in a child is rectal. Uh, Perfect. Second best is oral, and then yeah. all, kind of all the others you can throw in there that um, can be 
reliable in trending. So relative temperatures or changes in temperatures with those methods is, is somewhat reliable, but as an absolute number is not at all. Perfect. So the take home message is get a rectal temperature. Exactly. And interesting. I'm glad you mentioned that point with the, with, with parents. Remember a lot of these sepsis guidelines for IGNS would consider that a parent reporting that the temperature feels, the kid feels warm. That's just as good as a fever. Does that make sense? So yep. even if the parents, my seven day old really feels hot, that is actually given a lot of weight. So you don't brush that off. Yep. Absolutely. Perfect. Okay. So what number are we going to use for that rectal temperature? So we know in really, really young kids, we're going to get a rectal temperature, probably the best way of going. Um, other forms may have some um, utility in kind of following a temperature. But when you really want to get that number to kind of confirm, you're going to be using a rectal modality. So what number are you going to confuse, Dr. Bouchard? And again, we maybe even differ on this. Uh, I keep it simple in my head. A rectal temperature greater than 38 degrees, 38.0. Perfect. Love it. And an oral temperature greater than 37.8. Perfect. Perfect. I love it. So rectal temperature greater than 38 degrees, right? So we're going to define that as a fever. And again, depending on where your authority that you're going to use, they're going to have slightly different. They do things in Europe across the pond a little bit different. Um, they might have slightly different definitions, but I like that one. So temperature above 38. All right. So we know, and we know that temperature is going to be defined rectally. So we have a kid and they come inside and they're two and a half weeks old, Dr. Bouchard. So they're under a month old and they have a fever. Let's say they come inside and you, so you do a rectal temperature and it's 38.7, right? And you repeat it again and it's still 38.7, right? Yep. So what are you going to do? Well, that one's easy. When we talk about the extremes of fever, it's the intermediate ones that are hard. So less than a, less than a month old, they get the full meal deal. They get a full septic wor workup, empiric antibiotics, um, workup includes an LP. Excellent. So these are the kids that, yeah, you pretty well have to LP, right? So you're doing a full septic workup. So chest x-ray, um, especially if there's signs and symptoms of respiratory, blood cultures, urine cultures, um, um, plus or minus stool if they got any diarrhea. Um, and you got to do an LP because remember at this age group, they have, they can get hor horrific catastrophic sequelae from missing a meningitis, right? So, um, now keep in mind, the rate of these severe bacterial infections have been going down because of the famous pneumococcal vaccination, right? So these things, these things, um, uh, um, streptococcus pneumonia incidence has just plummeted in the last 15, 20 years since we've been giving, um, routinely kids the pneumococcal vaccination, right? But still in this age group, you have to remember that we're dealing with some pretty badness, um, sequelae. And even though most fever in this age group is still viral, right? The vast majority of it is viral. You do not want to miss a bacterial, right? Because the, the sequelae could be rather dramatic. Now, Dr. Bouchard, let's say, let's say I come inside and say, oh, man, Brady, I got this two week old and I do all the investigations against, except the LP. And I'm like, oh man, but there's like leukocytes and nitrites in this kid's urine. I think this kid has a UTI. I don't need to do the LP, right, Brady? Absolutely. DJ Brady Bouchard, DJ Brady Bouchard, the flip mode squad, the, the handsomest man right now in Victoria, British Columbia, Brady Bouchard in his basement, looking outside at the azaleas, blooming as we speak, would do an LP on a child when I have, and the answer, and he's perfectly right. You yeah, still absolutely. do the LP. Because remember, kids can have both, and you do not want to miss. At this age, remember, kids like blood brain barrier and the meninges is not totally formed under a month and stuff. And they can be bacteremic and get a meningitis fairly easy. So even if they do have that pile or whatever, it can, it can, uh, it can cause a meningitis depending on the bug. Yeah. And conversely, that'd be, uh, I'd be more likely to do the LP in that scenario. 
because you know that you have bacteria in the urine. And like you said, they don't have a blood brain barrier. If they're, if they're bacteremic from their urine, they're much more likely, even though it's super rare to get meningitis these days, um, they're yeah. more likely just because they're bacteremic. Why, exactly. why couldn't it end up in their brain? Exactly. And sometimes, you know, this comes up sometimes, you know what I mean? But you have to keep in mind, oh, we got a good focus or, oh, look, we have a focus and it's all good. Oh, look, the x-ray, there's a big pneumonia there. We don't need to do the LP. No, you still need to do the LP, right? Because these kids can be bacteremia and a bacteremic and that bacteremia can cause a meningitis. So Brady Bouchard, the handsomest man in Victoria, it must be the azalea power and the engineering power that is going to be operating at work so what do we do let's break up kids okay so that's under so what antibiotics would you give that kid okay fine you do the lp yeah so anything less than about three months old and this is including those who are unvaccinated later than that so up to about six months um they should all have a third generation cephalosporin so either ceftriaxone or cefotaxime um is probably most common and exactly. if they haven't been vaccinated and they're less than three months of age they need amp or amoxicillin as well because listeria is the bug that you're worried about in that group. Exactly, exactly. So especially in that one under one month, you're going to be mostly at times giving usually um, um, ampicillin and a third generation cephalosporin or ampicillin and gentamicin and plus or minus your friend acyclovir. Remember, if there's a risk factor, so if if mom had herpes, um, if the kid has mucocutaneous stuff going on, if the kid is uber sick, you want to be pretty, um, we don't have evidence for empiric acyclovir, so just kind of giving it out like candy to everybody, yeah. irrespective but if there's risk factors, consider your friend acyclovir because HSV is no fun. Yeah, absolutely. And that's a good point about the the less than one month, usually even less than two weeks. Um, but exactly. in the less than one month group, the biggest worries there are vaginal flora from the mother that you're worried about. Perfect. So that's why we look for and preemptively treat for GBS in mothers beforehand. And then, like you said, the herpes infection as well. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So yeah, so most kids are going to be, you know, under a month amp and gent or amp and cephalotaxy. Now, some people will say that, you know, remember there was that concern with cetriaxone and um, hyperbilirubinemia in the under one month and stuff, you know. Um, um, so some people will prefer to use cephalotaxime and stuff, um, you know. So it's one of these things, you know, you just have to be cautious with it as well, too, and stuff. So yeah, so really what you're going to be using is ampicillin and a third-generation cephalosporin or gen, plus or minus acyclovir. Um, get the kid all cultured up, including the LP, irrespective of what the other investigations seem to be positive. Make sure you do the LP. And you're basically waiting for all your cultures and everything to come back negative before you can send the child home. Yeah. Amen, Dr. Bouchard? Exactly. And honestly, in the rural setting that uh, we're in, if I had a febrile child less than a month old, I would be transferring them regardless. Initiating investigations, antibiotics, and, and transfer just... I mean, the younger they are, the just the the faster they go downhill. So, don't want to mess exactly. around. Exactly, exactly, and that's some good. That's uh, that's some good advice. So most of these kids um are going to be going out. You know, we in Sioux Lookout, we will um watch some of the kids in these group if they're uber healthy. And really, these are the kids that you're like, I think this is so viral. You know what I mean? And stuff. Everybody's at home and sick and stuff like that too. Um, uh, um, that. But most of these kids should be saying they're trying out because you know what, kids at this young, a lot of badness can happen. And um, we don't really have a neonatal ICU. So you want to kind of get them to a facility where they can get a little bit more, um, 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 should they need it, uh, more advanced care, a lot more expediously. Yep. No, that sounds totally reasonable. Excellent. Okay. So let's say that's not a two week old or three week old. Let's say that's like a seven week old, Dr. Bouchard comes inside with a temperature 
Yeah. Rip Roar 38.6. Exactly. So what are you going to do now? So this is where the LP becomes maybe. Maybe. So between one and three months, if they're unwell, they definitely still get the LP. Perfect. If they look lovely, they just have a temperature and you're, again, you're going down that kind of viral pathway. Um, they still get the rest of the work up. They get empiric antibiotics, but maybe you can hold off on the LP. Exactly. And, and that's what you want to keep in mind. So kind of between one and three months, it's a real sort of gray area, right? So, um, um, so usually what you're doing is that you're doing investigations, right? So you're doing your CBC, you're doing an x-ray if there's respiratory symptoms, stool, if there's clinical signs and symptoms, like could be a gastroenteritis or something like that, blood cultures, you're getting the urine, right? And then you, you kind of have a couple options, right? You can do all the investigations without the LP and watch the kid. Does that make sense? Like just not give them antibiotics and just watch them in hospital hospital, provided they look well. Does that make sense? And keep in mind, our discussion today is really involving kids that look well, right? Yep. I want to emphasize that. If any kid that's sick, they're getting the full shebang at any age, right? Because the kid is sick, right? The kid the kid looks unwell, right? That's not usually a challenge, right? It's a challenge more how you're going to manage that unwell child, but it's not a challenge like you're going to admit that person. That's not where the challenge is. The challenge is for the kids that look peachy. Does that make sense? And they come inside with just a fever and you can't figure out where the focus of the infection is, right? So you've done your clinical assessment. You don't know where that infection is. So kind of between one and three months, um, kind of between one and three months, you have a couple different options. You can do blood cultures, chest x-ray, urine, um, the shebang, including the LP if you wanted, right? Yep. Um, um, that's an option as well too. Um, I tend to in that, and this is where it's going to depend on because I know in our region, we have actually have a high mortality spike at kind of the one to two months. So I'm way more likely to LP a child under two months, right? Um, um, to L more, uh, LP a child uh, under, um, under, um, 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 under two months or so. But that's just kind of based on our sort of local epidemiology or so, right? Um, um, in other regions, they're going to have different, uh, rules. So yeah. So so that's an option as well too, plus the LP. I could do every, I could do the blood culture. I could do the chest x-ray. I could do um, the CBC. I could do the urine without the LP and watch the kid closely, right? Um, um, or I could do all the investigations, include the LP and give the kid some antibiotic like ceftriaxone and just, you know, wait, you know, to, 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 to see what happens or so, right? I tend to, if I give the antibiotic, I'm actually more likely to do the LP in that situation, right? Because you don't want to be, oh, this kid's better. Did they get better because of the antibiotic? Antibiotic. We don't know. Does that make sense? Or did they get better because of something else or so? Exactly. Perfect. And if you give the antibiotic, obviously you ruin your LP cultures. You ruin your LP. Uh, exactly. Between, you know, 12, 24 hours exactly. later, maybe less than kids without a blood-brain barrier. Perfect. Perfect. Exactly. So kind of between that one to three month rule, it's sort of the answer is it depends, right? The thing is, is that you have to watch these kids, right? Like pretty well any alternative that you do, whether you want to do the workup minus the LP or the workup plus the LP, both of them are reasonable options. And keep in mind, providing that these are low risk kids, like these are not kids that, you know, were in the ICU for their first three weeks of life, right? Like these, again, what we're talking about is all of today is this, these low risk situations for kids. Does that make sense? Like healthy, you understand, like, didn't spend two weeks in the ICU with a diaphragmatic hernia, like nothing like that. Right? Oh yeah, so absolutely. that that's the, the those those kids follow a different pathway. Yeah, anybody at the extremes, those those are easy decisions to make. They either get the full meal deal or they're perfectly well. We're we're talking about all these intermediate kids with, you know, just fever, maybe not too much else, but you know, you have to make the decision there. Um, I would suggest for, you know, new players to the game and especially those without a lot of pediatric experience that that all of these super young kids that come in with a fever should at least get a phone call to a pediatrician. Um, and you know what? I would even say every 
Exactly. And I agree with you totally, Brady. You know, I call the pediatrician all the time, right? Um, um, and there's nothing wrong, and I want to emphasize this too. Um, there's nothing wrong with calling, right? Absolutely. Like there's absolutely nothing called. That's why they're there, right? They call. You call. There's nothing. It doesn't take away from your abilities if you call and just kind of say, does my plan sound okay? Hi, I have a seven-week-old, and they have a fever, and I really don't think anything is going on. They're really low risk. But I want to do a urine, and I did a blood culture, and I did a blood, and everything's coming back low risk. Right. And, you know, I want to not do the LP in this kid because the parents aren't too keen to be poking around in their back. Is that reasonable, Mr. or Mrs. Pediatrician? Like that is perfectly fine. Right. Um, to do that, to run that by. So I didn't say irrespective of your level of experience, don't hesitate to do that. Even in those what I call slam dunk sort of cases. Right. Because keep in mind, you're still dealing with a relatively high risk situation. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Perfect. So under one month. Everybody's getting full septic workup and third generation cephalosporin, amp gen, plus or minus some acyclovir. Most of those kids are going to be going out because badness can happen. Between one to three months, you're basically, if you got a fever, you have a couple different choices. You could do sort of your CBC blood culture, urine, chest x-ray with the LP, without the LP, or with the LP, and some ceftriaxone. Both or all three of them are probably reasonable options. It's going to depend on the patient's context. The key thing is you don't want to send the person home without doing anything. Yeah, absolutely. Perfect. So what are we going to do after three months now? Yeah, so after three months, you get more into, um, you know, they have an immune system now. They've hopefully had some vaccinations. If they Perfect. if they haven't had vaccinations, um, you know, that they're two, four, six-month shots, I'd still be treating them down, you know, closer to the lower age groups just because they're higher risk for that sake. So. You know, a, exactly. a four month unvaccinated four month old. Well, they kind of get the, you know, one to two month kind of uh, idea in my mind of, of what you need to do and what you need to be looking for Perfect. because they can, they still have all the serious bugs and they have the bugs that we've kind of vaccinated against. So, yeah. So from three months to about three years of age, three to three in my mind. Um, if, they, yeah. if they're well appearing and fully vaccinated, I check a urine, check a urine in every kid that comes in with a fever, um, because that's a really common source and an easy investigation to do. If the urine's clear, symptomatic treatment at home for the fever, and you can just review them closely. So get them back to clinic the next day. Um, if they're unwell or not fully vaccinated, um, do a urine, do a white cell count, um, and do cultures, have a low threshold for this. You can either observe the kids in hospital um, and not give them antibiotics, or you can discharge them with empiric antibiotics and review them again in 24 hours. And then finally, in the patients who are toxic, seriously unwell, that's that's easy. It's the same thing with the younger kids. You treat it as a septic shock uh, in, a, in a young child, full workup, empiric antibiotics, admission consultation, that sort of thing. Perfect. I love it, Dr. Bouchard. So yeah, because we know that outside of that three months, exactly as you said, kids are now getting vaccinated. They're starting to grow a blood-brain barrier. Their immune system is getting a bit stronger. Those types of things. So we can take, um, um, it doesn't mean we take, we don't examine kids very well. We still do all of that stuff. But we, we, um, and I like what you mentioned about looking at the kids' vaccination status. Are they completely vaccinated? Especially for pneumococcus. I remember when I was in residence, I hate using that term. It wasn't that long ago. When I was in med school, <laughs> so many years ago, when, what do I always say? When sex was dirty and the air was clean. Does that make sense? I, I would have guessed it'd be like 20 years ago or so, Mike. 
Oh my god, no, yeah, only get yeah. oh the hey Brady Bouchard the comedian. Yeah. Hey, all right, all right, Brady Bouchard the comedian. Lovely. Holy moly. <laughs> anyway, Dr. Brady Bouchard, the comedian and the DJ and the world's sexiest man. Yep. So we never used to that like in those days, we didn't vaccinate a Prevnar and pneumococcal vaccinations just came out. Right. Kind of when I was doing medical school, right? So it used to make this algorithm a hell of a lot more complicated. <coughs> Excuse me, because you basically had um 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 you did not have this vaccination that was widely available. Now, because of the pneumococcal vaccination. You know, the rates of severe bacterial illness have just plummeted because of pneumococcus. Does that make sense? Just absolutely plummeted. Um, because now you get all this immunity, all this herd immunity, right? So it's really simplified the management of a lot of these kids, right? And usually it's structured around sort of, are you completely vaccinated? So have you gotten at least three injections of a pneumococcal vaccination, right? right. If you haven't, you're going to take a more, and usually that's under six months. Because remember, in most jurisdictions, you're kind of getting pneumococcus at what? Two, four, and six, if I remember correct, uh, correctly and stuff. So, um, so if you're doing that, you're going to take more of an aggressive approach in those kids under that, um, um, under that usually six month threshold or under the fact that they've been quote unquote completely vaccinated, right? Um, because the chance that they could have, uh, a, a more significant severe bacterial in the illness due to pneumococcus is higher because they just haven't been completely vaccinated yet versus the above the six months or three um three uh three shots right we're pretty well you know if they have a high fever um um, um if they have a high fever and stuff a urine would be perfectly appropriate and they don't need empiric blood work or x-ray or anything else um unless their clinical um situation deems that right gotcha sound like a plan dr bouchard sounds like a plan Perfect. What else are on there? So how about uh, discharge instructions for parents? Oh, what are you going to tell them when you're discharging from home? Oh, uh, exactly. Brady Bouchard, the sexiest man alive. What are you going to say? Yeah. So we're talking about, again, we're t well-appearing children with a fever. You're diagnosing them with a self-limiting illness. They can go home. Yeah. So you're talking to the parents here. I, I love talking to the parents here because they're it's inevitably 2 a.m. in the emergency department. They're absolutely exhausted. Their right. kid has been febrile for three or four days. Their temperature's been yo-yoing because they're not dosing the Tylenol or Advil correctly. Um, right. No fault of their own. Um, the kid's irritable. They haven't slept. The kid hasn't slept. The parents haven't slept. And they just want the problem fixed. So you're not going to fix yeah. their problem for them, but you're going to set their mind at ease. And you're going to give them clear instructions for when to come back um, if, you, if you just take a few moments to talk to them. So uh, a few of the things I say. Uh, reducing the temperature with antipyretics like Tylenol, Advil, um, they don't have to do it. They don't have to worry about reducing the temperature. They can do it. It'll probably make the kids yeah. sleep better. It'll give them some sleep. Um, it'll make the whole situation better for them. But if they're worried about the medications or especially if they're worried about chasing the fever, that's not, they don't need to do that. Exactly. You treat the kid, not the fever, basically, right? Don't get hung up on a number. If your kid is fine, if they're playing Minecraft and they're having a blast and they're 38-6, leave them the hell alone. Exactly. Back to my turtle. Exactly. Does that make sense? I love it. You do not need to drive them down to 37-whatever. Yeah. And if they're older than six months of age, there's good evidence that there's no correlation between the height of the fever and any illness. So either the diagnosis, the ultimate diagnosis of the illness, or the severity of it. So when they're chasing the fever, they're, they're not helping themselves. They're not helping you. So that's, that's point number one. 
ibuprofen maybe works better than Tylenol. Yeah. Um, and regular dosing with one works just as well as alternate dosing. So picking, a, you know, alternating between Advil and Tylenol makes it way easier on the parents. Uh, give give them a white dose before they go home because all of the on the box doses are under dosing just to be safe. Um, and uh, yeah, and dose it regularly. So don't ch- if they're gonna do it, um, do it on a regular interval. So Tylenol Q4H, um, Advil or ibuprofen Q6H. Um, give it to them regularly so you're not chasing the fever. So it's not like you know you give it to them, they don't have a fever. Six hours later, they have a crazy high fever. You give it to them, the fever goes down, back and forth like a yo-yo. So that's that's part of the advice. Um, what else do I say? That uh, tell the parents that the vast majority of fevers are quote unquote normal. They're associated with common ailments, uh, you know, upper respiratory tract infections, viral infections that'll go away on their own. Um, but if their uh, child has a temperature for greater than seven days, I want to see them back again because then you're thinking about causes of prolonged fever, um, especially childhood cancers. Uh, Kawasaki's disease is one that not even I keep in the back of my mind all the time, but you got to think of it. Um, and then other reasons to come back. So the catch-all for all parents, bring them back if they're concerned. Um, bring them back if the kid develops a new rash, if the kid's uh, lethargic or more lethargic than when you saw them, if they're unable or unwilling to tolerate oral fluids because you don't want them to get dehydrated. Um, and then if their fever doesn't respond to you know, usual dosing of the antipyretics, um, I say bring them back because... You know, usually it's an education thing with them and they're just not dosing it properly. But either way, you want to see it back again. Perfect. Perfect. That's excellent advice, Dr. Bouchard. And I love the fact titrate the antipyretic, whichever one you like to use, whether it's ibuprofen, whether it's Tylenol. Yes, ibuprofen might work a smidge better and stuff, but it really doesn't matter all that much. Treat the kid, not the fever, right? So if your kid is uncomfortable, give them some ibuprofen or give them some acetaminophen, right? If they're not uncomfortable, you don't have to give them anything, right? Um, um, so I think that is all very, 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 very good, um, very, very good advice. And really to have that, that discussion with parents so that they know what should be the cause that should trigger me to come back to the hospital. I mean, if you think about it, like most of the time too, and I remember with my own kids, that a lot of times too, it's like you're scared as a parent, right? Like you're concerned. You're like, this is my kid. This is my pride, my joy, right? Like I'm actually really uber scared, right? And I know that 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 this is probably nothing major, but I just want to be reassured that everything's going to be okay, right? And a lot of times it's that and, and that reassurance that you can give and doing that in a way that doesn't seem that you're brushing people off and telling them, why did you show up at the emergency at four o'clock in the morning? You understand? It's so valuable for me. Yep. And I tell all these parents, parents of kids, not just with fever, but with anything that come in, especially because they often think if they're educated parents, they often think you're, they're wasting your time. And I'm like, you know what? I think this kid's going to do fine. But that said, I have no, I, I don't mind seeing them now at 2 a.m. I don't mind seeing them, you know, tomorrow at 2 a.m. If you happen to bring them in, it's okay. I'm here to reassure you. Perfect. Don't, don't worry about bringing them in if you want to. Exactly. And I think that's such a good point that you mentioned. Reassurance is okay. Like, it is okay to come and see a doctor just to get real. Like, that's fine. That's what we do as physicians. Most of the time is reassure people, right? That they're not, they don't have something uber bad, right? Or that their approach to managing something is fairly reasonable, right? And that 
that's okay. And I find a lot of times patients feel sort of like, oh my God, I bother you at like two o'clock in the morning. You're going to think I'm, 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 I'm crazy. You understand? Like you're going to think all these bad things. No, I, I am happy. If all I can give you is reassurance, I have done my job. Does that make sense? Like that is fantastic. So, so that people can leave with that, with that knowledge that you know what? I, I, like I know, I know exactly what to do. This is going to pass. This kid doesn't need antibiotics those types of things i think that's valuable for parents yeah absolutely perfect there's a handout on up to date i use for kids uh, or to give to parents in this too that has all this information it's a, a really nice thing because parents can't always process it at 2 a.m too so exactly you we can barely process it at 2 a.m yeah exactly there exactly exactly yeah so no oh, sp so speaking of kids i can hear your kids in the background i think my kids are awesome they just my kids are like little dynamos. They're dynamos of power and effervescence, like the great Brady Bouchard. Yeah, I wonder if they're genetically related to you, Mike. <laughs> oh my gosh, how do you know that? You know what? Not only are you a DJ, but you're yeah. also an a super awesome page patient. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> are you around? My phone just did something weird and stuff. It was like frozen. That's right. I thought it was me again. I'm like, damn it. I did it again to Mike. You did it again, Dr. Bouchard. Now let's continue on. What were we talking about again? Before your Vancouver, before the West Coast internet foiled us again. Exactly. The last point I was going to bring up in that whole thing with discharging home was that um, you should give parents something uh, printed, something uh, written. So up to date has a nice uh, fever in children uh, beyond the basics handout that you can give them that's freely available. Perfect, perfect. I love it. I love it and stuff. So reassurance, uber, uber important. So just to recap, when we deal with the kitties, so what are we dealing with when we deal with the kitties? Under months, irrespective of how they look, they're getting a full septic workup. They're getting amp and gent or amp and cephotaxime or amp and ceftriaxone, plus or minus acyclovir. You're bringing them in and sending them to a tertiary care center and stuff in the most cases. Between one and three months, they're getting something if they have a fever. So it's usually uh, like a CBC, a blood culture, and a urine, plus or minus an LP. You can watch those kids. You don't necessarily have to LP every kid in that one to three months category, right? Um, um, and then above three months, if they have a fever, if they, if they ha haven't been completely vaccinated, so in most cases that's under six months, they haven't gotten three pneumococcal vaccinations yet, you're doing a more aggressive workup. So you're doing a CBC, a blood culture, a urine at the very least, plus or minus an x-ray if they have respiratory symptoms, plus or minus a stool if they have bowel symptoms. Other than that, if, they're, if they've gotten three, if they've gotten three pneumococcal vaccinations, then you don't necessarily need to work them up all that much. You may consider a urine. Does that make sense? What a beautiful summary. Oh, Dr. Brady Bouchard is in Victoria right now watching his azaleas. It, it's true. There you go. I, I, I don't know what azaleas and, are, and but I'm totally looking out for them. And totally destroying pediatric fever. <laughs> Brady Bouchard, why are you so sexy? That's my only question for you. <laughs> smart as a new sexy, why are you so sexy, Dr. Bouchard? If I had you a nickel for every time you asked that, I wouldn't DJ have to practice. of CCFP examination goodness. I, I think it's all you, Mike. You bring the game. Bring the game. Holy moly. Okay, so what's next? So we tackle pediatric fever. How about fever of unknown origin? Because that kind of fits into pediatric fever a little bit. Yeah, very good. So fever of unknown origin. So it persists for longer. A lot of guidelines use that seven days. Some use more than 14 days. But definitely more than seven days, you're going to be like, okay, what WTF, what's going on? Yep, absolutely. 
Perfect. And that conveniently is when I asked the parents to bring their kid in for review anyways. Yeah. Um, just in case we didn't have a diagnosis to start off with. And I just thought, you know, they have a fever, they look well, whatever. So it's good to know if you haven't found a source for the fever, most of that is still going to be infection. Yes. You may not find it, but, you know, at 8 days, 14 days, whatever, um, it's still mostly going to be infection. But the, the second most common thing to have in the back of your mind, 20 to 30%, give or take, is malignancy. Um, so that's the one, you know, you don't want to miss. And then to round out the category, 10 to 20% of these uh, FUOs, these fever of unknown origins, are going to be um, some connective tissue disorder. Perfect. Some inflammatory rheumatic condition. Excellent. So if the fever persists, it could still be an infection, right? Remember, TB is an infection too, right? Um, 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 blastomycosis, in fun certain fungal infections, those types of things that can grumble along for a really, really long time. Those are infections as well. So infection, then malignancy, really, really have on your spider sense, tingling for that potential, and then some type of connective tissue autoimmune process. Perfect. Yep, beautiful. And so that's when, you know, at that point... Um... Probably in the real areas, you'll be working this up yourself with your specialist colleagues on the phone. Um, but otherwise, they'd probably get referred in um, to, you know, a pediatrician with some experience in this. But basically, you're looking for kind of all those um, less common causes on history examination on investigations. So looking for, you know, um, things that might be concerning for malignancy on, on history and physical Um which you don't need to dive into deeply because we'll do that on a different topic. But then um, some infections, like you mentioned, they should probably have a tuberculin skin test at that point. They should have HIV serology. They should have other viral serologies. So um, EBV, C, uh, CMV, um, the hepatitis viruses, if you want to go down that route. Um, other blood tests that might cause or be associated with fever. So um, hyperthyroidism, so TSH, and then the connective tissue markers that can be somewhat useful. So ANA and, and rheumatic fever or uh, rheumatoid factor, sorry. Perfect, perfect. Yeah, excellent, excellent. No, no. And you want to be careful too with those connect, connective tissue drugs. Like, and you have to be careful because remember a lot of those signs, they don't behave the same way in kids as they do in adults, right? So you do have to be cautious with them. And this is when you speak to your friendly neighborhood pediatric rheumatologist and saying, okay, do I have to worry about Stills disease or do I have to worry about something, you know what I mean? And, and usually I get guidance from them over what tests to order because sometimes if you order these tests all willy-nilly, especially for the connective tissue stuff, you're going to end up being burned in the end because, oh, Oh, day nine, the fever goes away, the kid is outside playing, but their ANA is now, you know, tighter, comes back slightly elevated, right? So, um, um, so yeah, so you want to, you want to make sure that you, uh, that you, um, that you, you, you speak to pediatrics, that you speak to, um, you know, potentially pediatrics rheumatology as you're working these things up. So I'll often speak to them and kind of say, is this particular case, you know, would you do an ANA or an RF or, or another sort of uh, a serologic marker and which one would you use, right? Um, so they, yep. because they might say a lot of the times too, that, well, you know what, like it's only day eight and it went away and you don't want to be stuck with this ANA that's positive um, uh, um, um, in a kid that's now doing well, right? Um, yep. um, because even to diagnose these rheumatic conditions, remember, they don't just require positive serology. They require other um, uh, um, clinical features and stuff to be able to delineate that diagnosis. And the other, the one kind of adult differential that I can think of for fever of unknown um, origin that you want to keep in the back of your mind is uh, DVT or pulmonary embolism. Yeah, perfect. So that's that's something that you totally wouldn't think of. I certainly didn't think of it in in residency until I until I read up on it. Um, yeah. But pulmonary embolism, acute pulmonary embolism, can often cause a low grade fever. Not usually too high of a fever, but 
Um, exactly, exactly. It was usual for to see like a 39.9 fever, you know, and stuff that was due to a PE and just a PE. Um, yeah. um, you know, the person might get a little RV strain or get something going on and stuff like that too, and put a little fluid in their lungs or might put a little bugs in their lungs as well too. Um, um, so yeah, but yeah, very, very good points. So, awesome. fever on known origin, persistent fever. Remember your good friends, infections. Remember to check for the stuff. There's the regular stuff, but there's also HIV, hepatitis B, hepatitis C. Um, there's other viral serology, so EM, uh, EBV, CMV, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Remember malignancies. Doesn't mean that everybody gets a full body MRI, but it does mean that you take a good look and do a good history and physical examination and make sure you consult your pediatric rheumatologist, your adult rheumatologist to look for some connective tissue diseases. I'm way more yep. likely to see them at first for the uh, for the pediatrics patients because keep in mind, like RF and ANA don't behave the same way in kids as they do in adults, um, uh, um, um, as they do in uh, in adults and stuff. Perfect. The effervescent Dr. Brady Bouchard. What's the next topic we're gonna we're gonna tackle on the cornucopia, this potpourri of febrile DJ goodness? Uh, how about neutropenic fever? Oh, neutropenic fever. Oh, yeah. that's a good topic. It is a so good topic. Neutropenic fever. So yeah. again, so Dr. Bouchard, what is it about neutropenic fever? Is this something serious? Is it something you have to take very seriously? Hey, this is only something that happens in tertiary care centers, on cancer wards and those types of things, right? Am I going to, is that it only, is that in our patients with cancer? Oh, goodness, no. And especially nowadays when we have uh, chemotherapy being given as an outpatient, and especially in rural areas, like even some of our rural hospitals will do, you know, chemotherapy hours, hours drive away from the from the oncologist. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So again, this is something for rural medicine. Like sometimes you think about, oh man, oncology, like it's so complex. There's always a new clinical trait. You know, it's hard to keep cell lines and where cells differentiate and stuff. If you, I always say you got to know the complications that patients who have malignancy can get because you see those patients in a rural setting, right? Yeah. Um, there are pe um, um, people who, who live in rural areas, um, they get malignancies, right? And now they're being treated way closer to home. So there's no oncologist, for example, where I work, right? And the oncologist is 600 kilometers away. And they telephone in um, 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 orders for chemotherapy, right? So oftentimes people will get their initial sort of initial sort of period, you know, the first couple weeks at the tertiary care center. And then after that, the entire other cycles are completed rurally or in a rural center, right? So you see these complications as a physician. So like you gotta you gotta know you know what are the big complications that people with malignancies get you know like the 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 you know the epidural cord compression the SVC syndrome all that wonderful stuff and hopefully you know if we have time in a future podcast we can talk about those things that patients with malignancies uh, um, uh, um, 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 get one of the big things is febrile neutropenia so it's like how it sounds it, you have a fever and you're neutropenic. Now, different authorities will kind of differ on what their sort of definition of that is. I use the IDSA because everybody just tends to use the IDSA, I guess, in Canada. So they'll use a single spot temperature of higher than 38.3 or kind of similar to our stuff in kids, a greater than uh, um, a, a temperature of 38 for sustained for more than an hour, right? So that's the fever part of it, right? So you're getting chemotherapy, you're getting some type of cytotoxic chemotherapy, some type of chemotherapy, and you present with that temperature, does that make sense? And you're neutropenic. 
Now, different places and different labs will, you know, will, will call neutropenia different things, right? Um, so some people like to use the absolute, we always use the absolute neutrophil count. I like to use a value under about 500, right? So if you see the value under that, that is bad. So that is febrile neutropenia. You need to have both. Exactly. And as it's reported on our labs, that comes up as, because it can be somewhat confusing, comes up as 0.5. So less than point, a neutrophil count less than 0.5. Well, a 0.5, yeah. So it's like 500. It's like cells per mil. Does that make sense? So 500 cells per mil. So 0.5, right? So, um, so if you see that, plus you see a fever, high, a single temperature higher than 38.3, or a temperature that's been going on for a little while and it's been persistently higher than 38, think of badness, folks, because these people are at high risk. Exactly. And probably one of the very first things you should do if you see patients like this, um, other than recognizing that they're high, at high risk and that you're going to need to manage them, um, every oncologist I've ever talked to wants to hear about their patient who ends up with a neutropenic fever. Exactly. Perfect. And I think that's really good advice, Dr. Bouchard. Make sure you call oncology because they want to know about these patients. Even, you know, some patient, neutropenic fever can be bad, right? Yes, there are some people that are more high risk than others, but neutropenic fever can be really bad because remember, people are getting cytotoxic chemotherapy. They kind of don't have an immune system. So they're at risk of all these other badness infections, right? A lot of gram-negative infections. And how well is gram-negative sepsis? It's pretty bad, right? Um, and they're susceptible to this sort of stuff. So yeah, yeah, definitely get on the phone with oncology. For my patients with malignancies, I'm almost always on the phone with oncology when they come in with anything, right? And you know, oncologists are, are really good, generally, in that they want to know about this stuff. They would hate to know that the person, even if they were, you thought they were really low risk, you know, they had a solid tumor, and you know what I mean, and stuff, they didn't have diabetes, and they have normal kidneys, and everything else is otherwise good, and you know, it's it's not anticipated that the degree of, of neutropenia is going to be prolonged, right? You just said, oh, okay, we're going to do this, this, and this, and this. Even if you follow diet guidelines and you did the right thing they would probably still be pissed because they want to know about it right because this stuff <laughs> yeah. is important right it totally is so Absolutely. give them a call right so neutropenic fever big deal temperature higher than 38 absolute neutrophil count under 500 or 0.5 depending what units your laboratory use get in touch with oncology right and remember these people they are admitted in most cases now again i should say some people with neutrophenic fever doesn't mean that everybody needs to be admitted but you need to speak to oncology to help you make that decision whether or not you're going to be managing this person as an outpatient right i would not make that call as a primary care physician in sue lookout right like myself right if you're getting yep. those kind of calls you're getting those people and you're getting them to where the, the to the to the uh the tertiary care center and stuff. And oftentimes yeah. they'll want those people there right away exactly and the other thing i've i've found in my limited experience so far is that generally oncologists also um are very particular about which empiric broad spectrum antibiotic you give them. so i call them before even do that generally in saskatchewan where i'm practicing it's it's uh piptaz yeah um but you know not always and yeah um you don't want to muddy the waters for exactly for for exactly. the management of that and remember too it's a good idea because remember everywhere remember when we get into like infections we're going away from cookie cutter medicine and kind of looking at your antibiotic sensitivities when different places choose an agent they're choosing it based on the antibiotic sensitivities in their region right up to date doesn't know what the hell is going to go on in your region so when it makes a recommendation it's just going to throw out what other all oh, what a whole bunch of people do it doesn't mean that it's going to give you the right answer for your region does that make sense so yep. so that's why it's so important to um that's why it's so important to uh to 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 ask and stuff so piptazo can be a reasonable option mirapenem can be a reasonable option septazidine can be an option but again it's not cookie cutter 
get in touch with your oncologist because they will know the sensitivities of what bugs are floating around and what can be the best agent to use. So you get yep. them cultured, you get them investigated, and um, 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 you're going to make sure that you um, start them on antibiotic therapy and get them to the tertiary care center or get exactly. on the phone with your oncologist. Perfect. And another uh, point in there, which is why I call oncology early, um, even earlier than I would call with most other conditions, um, calling specialists is because um, it's too hard to keep in your mind which chemotherapeutic agent causes neutropenia and to what degree and on what timeline. So um, some agents will cause it, you know, three days after after a cycle and will last for two days. Um, other agents will will start at like seven days and last for a week. Um, and you kind of need to know the other the part of that is if they're they're borderline neutropenic and they have a fever. Uh, you need to know if they're on the downswing of that, whether their white cells are going to plummet even further, um, or whether they're on the upswing of that and kind of um, out of danger's way. And, and asking the oncologist that, I think, is, is an important way to triage your patients as well. Brady Bouchard, you are the world's sexiest man. Does that make sense? Because smart is the new sexy. And those are excellent words of wisdom. And you know another reason, too? They're always doing trials on different types of chemotherapy for every type of cancer, right? So it's not uncommon for your patient to be on a clinical trial. Does that make sense? Number two, I don't know really jack about chemotherapeutic agents, like absolute jack, right? I know it's not something that we're taught about. You know, oncology is kind of this world and they use a lot of, you know, some monoclonal antibodies. They use some others, but we don't really get taught. So it's not something, folks, that we're familiar with. You know, and they dose medications by centimeters squared per second. They have, so, you know, it's not something that we're familiar with. And that's such a key point, Dr. Bouchard, the world's sexiest man, is that we have to understand. I understand my limitations. I don't know what agencies are. And I don't know what agent is going to produce neutropenia now versus in three days. And what happens? They're always doing clinical trials with different how to treat different types of cancers. Isn't that not correct? Yeah, absolutely. So your patient, there's a good chance your patient might be enrolled in one of these trials where they're using agent GP438C, right? Regime X. And you get this thing, and you're like, what the hell, right? Is this some new monoclonal antibodies? Are the monoclonal antibodies taking over the world? Exactly. They, they totally are. They totally are. Remember we said <laughs> that? They're taking over the world. You're going to have a monoclonal antibody that does everything. Yeah, we'll have, we'll have uh, personal tailored uh, oncology therapy sooner rather than later, I'm sure. Exactly. I know. I know. And that'll be, that'll be awesome for patients. But again, ask, because I don't know about you, Brady, but I like when I hear chemotherapeutic agents, I just kind of, my brain just kind of goes into mush, you know, and, and, and oncologists talking really close, close. Oh, we're putting the person on DX439B, you know, we're putting the person on, you know, a chop regime. And, you know, they have all these funny algorithms and these funny mnemonics to describe things. And then when they say, oh, they're just on chop and they're on a hypervad regime and and, you know, they're on cycle four. You know what I mean? Like cycle four, hyper bad. Are we, is that like Star Wars? You know, <laughs> is that like, seriously, that sounds like Star Wars. When they're listing a regime, it sounds like you are Han Solo. You are directing the Millennium Falcon to go kill Boba Fett. You know, I want to do the chop regime and I want you to take me to hyper bad <laughs> four immediately. Chewbacca. Turn up the throttle, right? Like, we don't know that in family medicine, right? And that's fine. Ask. That's the key message. So that's why I want to say for febrile neutropenia, not to pick it up and ask. Even if you don't remember any of the antibiotics, it's fine. Not to pick it up and ask. Fever above 38, uh, a fever above 38 and an absolute neutrophil count under 0.5. If they meet the criteria, they're sick. They have to come in. Their chances are they're going to go to a tertiary care center or your regional cancer center. 
call the oncologist, make them aware, and tell them what antibiotics you'd like them to use, and make sure they get cultured and leave. Or they cultured and you you have a clear plan from the oncologist, you know, what are we doing? Yeah, exactly. No, beautiful point. Brady Bouchard, you see, you are the DJ. How many DJ analogies have we gone in here this time? Uh, can I say too many? You have a theme and then a, a sub-theme. And the sub-theme for this one is DJs. These DJs, awesome. <laughs> oh my god, you're the... You're the chemical brothers of sepsis. DJ fever. There you go. You're DJ fever. Yeah. Now, guess what? It's DJ fever! And as the undercard, the man, malignant, hyperthermia. That's your first title track off the new album, dropping February 2016. <laughs> Thermia by DJ Fever. Take us another way, Dr. Bouchard. Good question. What do you want to talk about with it? It's more like it's kind of in the anesthetic field. Um, exactly. More than, more than anything we typically deal with, I think. Um, Perfect. It's, it's good to know about it. I don't know. Actually, I don't even know what the timelines are afterwards. I don't think I've ever had a worry of this in a patient that's, you know, past the operating theater um, you know, past recovery, coming back to my clinic or coming back to the eMERGE later kind of thing. Exactly, exactly. And you know what? I kind of lump these topics together. So malignant hyperthermia, neuroleptic malignant syndrome, um, um, serotonin syndrome, as kind of these, you know, they're kind of these syndromes where you get this autonomic perturbation that often gives you fever. You get some neuromuscular kind of instability. Does that make sense? Yep. Um, uh, you get some neuromuscular instability, this sort of autonomic uh, and autonomic dysfunction, right? Um, um, so that's what I'm saying. Like off these, these syndromes, in my mind, I connect them, right? So, so um, uh, neuroleptic malignant syndrome associated with a lot of different types of anesthesia, um, certain types of muscle relaxants. This is uber rare. You know, where you see it in in, in, uh, in primary care is a lot with like, oh, hi, I may have it. And do I do you send the person to genetics? Do you send them for a muscle biopsy, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? So occasionally you will have patients more on that because they're concerned because they think their great grandmother in the 1930s might have had it. Does that make sense? And they're going for surgery and they want to know if they have it, right? And oftentimes you may need to involve genetics to kind of actually determine what that risk is does that make sense yeah no that's beautiful perfect but usually in these syndromes you get this autonomic dysfunction and you get this neuromuscular instability and you get these mental status changes right so um neuroleptic neuroleptic malignant syndrome ser um, serotonin syndrome and uh neuroleptic malignant syndrome, serotonin syndrome and what were we just talking about my mind malignant hyperthermia malignant hyperthermia there usually they involve something like of those three domains there's some type of neuromuscular instability autonomic dysfunction and mental status changes right yep. some type in all of them yeah perfect exactly and honestly i don't think we'd ever see this enough um again from the primary care perspective to to be able to differentiate them in our mind we can go look it up in the textbook afterwards or look it up online but you need to just know what they are and have have a have an idea in the back of your mind so you can so you don't miss the diagnosis so Perfect. so like you said this autonomic uh, dysregulation fever for no other reason um, especially if it develops really fast after surgery or after they started or stopped taking any of the kind of trigger medications so serotonin meds and dopamine meds you kind of have to have in the back of your mind and then Perfect. and then after that you can kind of look it up to be honest 
Excellent, excellent. And that's, and I think that's fair, right? Like, I think that's fair because usually, um, the treatment for this stuff is stopping the insulting agent, right? So if it's a, if it's a, um, a neuromuscular blocking agent, making sure that people are aware of it and you're not using it, right? Um, um, if it is a neuroleptic, that you're aware of that, right? If it's a serotonin, a serotonin, agent that you're aware of that too when you're decreasing your dose um, and doing things appropriately and kind of keep them on your back of your mind because remember this stuff can make old people confused you know and you know that 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 old person that is on some syrupil to help them fall asleep at night or on some um, quetiapine or on some olanzapine you know the you know they can be at risk of neuroleptic malignant syndrome yeah so just a couple of agents to have in mind just so you have them so with malignant hypothermia the most common one or at least the most common one in exams will be uh, succinylcholine or succinylcholine that you have to think about. Yeah. Um, that's the whole point of using rocuronium instead, as well as the volatile anesthetics. So think of sevoflurane. Uh, with serotonin syndrome, and think of your SSRIs as a cause. Neuroleptic malignant syndrome, um, think of uh, atypical antipsychotics, antiemetics, um, TCAs is kind of your common causes there. Perfect, perfect. And your treatment is largely supportive, right? In some cases, of ne- yeah, you're, you might hear a medication called dantrium that they'll sometimes use as well too in people with bad, um, in people with bad malignant hyperthermia, um, if it's diagnosed. But yeah, like those are the types of things. They're largely supportive, right? Yeah. Um, and, and it really involves stopping the offending agent. Yep. Beautiful. Oh my God. Oh my goodness. I think we hit the highlights of fever. I think we hit the highlights of fever. Dr. Bouchard, the world's sexiest man, just rocked the fever world. Beautiful. Nice work, man. Good. Excellent. Always a pleasure, Dr. Bouchard. Yeah, later. Take care, bye.